So as Christmas gets closer, we're looking forward to those times that we can visit with our family and our, our friends. We're busier, probably, than we want to be at this moment, but we're eager for when it stops and we get that time where it settles down and we've done everything we need to do, kind of closed down our year and we're spending time with those closest to us. In a real way, everything we do aims at those moments. We're trying to get there and we're preparing for that because we're made, created for those kinds of deep relationships. All mankind, all image bearers are. We, we cherish our memories of those especially sweet times that we've had together. We really felt like we connected well. We feel the loss of those what we wish were with us and won't be this Christmas. We also may get a little uneasy when we realize that sometimes the visit doesn't go according to our expectations. Maybe we didn't connect so well because there are visits and there are really good visits. And really the point of all that is it highlights that deep-seated desire that we all have to be visited by God. Underneath it all is that. And that leads us to the visit of visits, which is the whole reason that we celebrate Christmas. And so today we pick up the story with that growing older, righteous, blameless couple, priestly couple, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and recall that God's messenger, Gabriel, that special messenger of good news, at the high point of Zechariah's ministry, when he's chosen by Lot to burn the incense at the evening sacrifice, a huge honor, that Gabriel meets with him and says to him, your prayer has been heard. And so we ask, which prayer is that? Is it, is it the prayer for the nation? Certainly he's praying for the nation. That's a point of offering incense at the evening sacrifice. You're praying for the well-being and restoration of the nation. Surely he's praying that way. But the context of that makes it clear that there's another prayer that even in that moment is occupying in a very weighty way his mind and heart. It's his old wound, his deep loss which seems to be especially on his heart right then. It's he and his dear wife, he's thinking of Elizabeth, his dear wife Elizabeth's unmet longing for a child. All those years, all these married years and the old burden they've borne for so many years. And it's something about the high point of his ministry when he should be so content that that wound weighs heavy we can identify with that sometimes. And Gabriel says to Zechariah at that moment, Elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name John. But, in, but instead of jumping for joy at that moment, being overawed by wonder and thankfulness that God finally answered his heartfelt prayer, Zechariah, the aged priest, says, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well advanced 
in years. And essentially what he is saying to Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and has come to him is, God's promise just isn't enough for me right now. I need more. It's not enough. And so we see a righteous and blameless man who's full of God's word, and yet at the same moment, he, over this issue at least, is resigned and even cynical. He's lost his sense of believing expectancy that God is at work in his life, in his wife's life, in power and grace. Maybe for the nation, but maybe not for me. So right there, Gabriel disciplines him. He strikes him deaf and dumb, unable to hear and unable to speak. And he does so again right at the height of his public ministry, what he's been dreaming about being able to do to to emerge from offering incense and be able to lead the other priests in blessing the people with the Aaronic priesthood. He was so looking forward to that, but now he's deaf and dumb. He can't do it, and so now he has one more disappointment to add on top of the deep one. And yet in a much greater way, which he, it doesn't take long for him to see, it's the blessing of a lifetime. Against all hope, Elizabeth does become pregnant. As Gabriel says to Mary, nothing is impossible with God, nothing. It's almost like at Christmas we should deepen our appreciation for that more than any time of year. Nothing is impossible with God. And so that brings us to our passage today, Luke chapter one. We're gonna read from verse 57 through 80 and see what happens. Hear God's word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered how, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, 
in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade and this good word endures forever. Thanks be to God. And so we see in this passage the fruit of God's loving discipline in the life of a person. He's he's a changed man. Uh, Do you remember a time like this in your life? He's no longer cynical and resigned. He's, He's full of heartfelt, expectant trust in God's strength and mercy. Had God not disciplined Zechariah and forced him into this time, of a time of silence and meditation, he, he would not have become the kind of father who could nurture his son John to be the forerunner of Messiah. It was crucial God do this. And so seeing this helps us appreciate of God's loving disciplinary purposes in our life. And behind this, Discipline is a part of discipleship. We see the need for silence and meditation in our lives, increasingly in our world. It's one of the reasons in the history of the church that wisdom to have a season of Advent. Look, settle down. It takes a moment for God's promises to sink deep. So Elizabeth gives birth to her son, and, and her dream is realized far beyond what she could ask or imagine. Um, we saw last week that she's overcome with joy when Mary comes to visit her, and she actually prophesies the significance of both John and Jesus. I mean, she got it quickly. So her neighbors rush over to celebrate God's great mercy to her. And then on the eighth day, according to God's law, they come over to circumcise him. They serve as witnesses, much like you congregation served as witnesses to Gwendolyn this morning. And they endeavor to name him at that moment. So custom called for him to be named after his father. But Elizabeth surprises them all by saying, no, he's going to be called John because that's what Gabriel told us. And so the witnesses protest against this because of tradition. And so they go to Zechariah. Maybe you will overrule here and do the right thing. But they give him the writing tablet. And John simply writes, his name is John. It's it's even more emphatic to him. There was no choice. Gabriel announced it nine months ago. We see Zechariah quickly became humble and submissive to God's word in a new way. Even as he's grown older, he's grown deeper in his faith in the Lord. And so immediately after he writes this, verse 64 says his mouth is opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. And that blessing is the song we have. 
It's that joyful song. There's all the songs and the birth narratives are this unbridled joy for what God has done in this sad world. And so we call this the Benedictus because it's a blessing. That's the Latin for blessing. So if you couldn't talk for nine months, what would be the first words out of your mouth? What would overflow from your heart? What would you had been brewing over and meditating over? We see what he's been thinking about, what his heart overflows with, and it's just saturated with God's good promises in scripture. So three quick points. We're gonna look at it in the prophetic word, uh, the personal role, and then the promised fulfillment. Prophetic word, personal role, promised fulfillment. So from verse 68 to 75, notice verse 67 stresses that this wonderful song, Zechariah's song, isn't just the overflow of his heart, but at the same moment, it's the result of the Holy Spirit's filling of Zechariah so that he prophesies. It's his word and it's God's word. After 400 years of silence, there's been no new revelation in Israel because the new event hadn't happened yet. But now God's giving new revelation to explain what's going on. So his song is an inspired commentary on the significance of what God's doing. And so verse 70 indicates that what God's doing was foretold by all the Old Testament prophets. Notice it says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Now, shouldn't that be mouths of his holy prophets of old? He says that to say, yeah, there's many prophets, but there's one voice. They are all in agreement because we're all agreed what our need is. And God's always told us what we need for it. And that's that God would save by his redeemer. They've said the same thing and now we're here. So three major figures in this portion. Moses, the foundational Old Testament prophet, spoke of these days. So he starts with Moses in verse 68 when he says, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Do y'all remember we went through Exodus for a few Sundays this year? And back in chapter two and three and four, it talks about God visiting his people when they were just groaning under slavery. It, it, it's reference to the exodus from Egypt right here that the exodus spoke of these times. So God visited his people under slavery and he redeemed them by the hand of Moses and that was a great visit from the Lord. God rescued and redeemed his people at great cost. He redeemed them from sin's penalty there. And that was the point of the Passover lamb because they were just as deserving of judgment as Egypt was, amazingly. But they needed a sacrifice. They needed a substitute. He also redeemed them from Pharaoh's and Satan's, really, power at the Red Sea when he drowned Pharaoh's armies. So he gave them freedom in the fullest sense of the word, political and economic and social and especially spiritual liberty. 
And yet as great as all that was, as important as that visitation was, God's greater exodus redemption was still to come. But then King David also spoke of these days. In verse 69, we start talking about David. Zechariah sings, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. David also spoke of today. And so it's a reference back to 2 Samuel 7. God made a covenant promise with David that he'd always have a son to reign on his throne for the good of Israel. And that Davidic king had an important role. He was charged with representing God to the people. He was tasked with rescuing the people from their enemies, from all who hate them. And he was commissioned to establish justice and peace in the land. And yet, Israel's history is one long and sordid and sad history of Davidic kings failing, doing the exact opposite, and leading the people into ruin. So they all really, by their failure, pointed to a king everyone needed. It pointed to these days, a greater Davidic king whom Zechariah calls the horn of salvation. It's a wonderful image. It's an image of this huge, aggressive bull who, who shakes his head side to side and threatens you with its strength and power. You might think of one of those bulls over the Buffalo Park, these big old horns that just says power and, and might. It's a symbol of strength and the king we need is one strong enough to save us from our enemies because we have enemies and from those who hate us because we have those who hate us. And then he adds to that in verse 72 that he's gonna be one who keeps his promises. Even when it's tough, he keeps them. And he's gonna be one who shows mercy to his people always. And so Zechariah is just full of praise and joy for this real king that's coming, this Messiah who's powerful enough and loving enough to fulfill his promises to show mercy to you in the face of your enemies. So the question is, what is your enemy? Who are those who hate you? Who do, what about you life do you think is just too strong for God to deal with or want to deal with? And our ultimate enemies are sin and death and hell and the devil. And the Messiah to come was like a bull with horns that could handle it. It was full of mercy to want to. Well, then Abraham spoke about him too. So we move on to Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham and he told Abraham and his descendants, you're gonna be enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, but that's not the end of the story. <clears throat> I'm gonna redeem you, bring you back and give you the promised land. And then to confirm this beyond a shadow of a doubt for him, he gets him to carry out this covenant ceremony. It was commonly used in the day when parties made a covenant together. Abraham cuts up these big animals and puts them side in, in front of one another to make a pathway between them. And so commonly the two parties would pass between the animals and say, look, if I don't keep my part of this promise, may I become like these cut up animals? Pretty, pretty visual. But the amazing, incredible thing is that God puts Abraham to sleep. And Abraham does not pass through those animals. 
God himself alone, alone passes through those animals, through the symbols of smoke and fire. And this way, God is graphically promising to Abraham, look, I'm gonna redeem your people. I'm gonna do it without conditions. I will do it. Doesn't depend upon you. And may I become like these animals. If I don't do it, may I be cursed and cut up. May God be cursed and cut up. If I don't, by my grace alone, redeem the people and give them the promised land. And one more thing about Abraham that comes out in verses 74 and 75 is we see the goal of all of this like saving work in Zechariah's song. What, what Zechariah longs to be able to do well, and he recognizes his own failings, that we may serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Our enemies make it tough. But you see here, he wants to be redeemed by this Messiah in order to be able to do what he's created to do. It's not a self-centered salvation. You and I are designed to glorify God and to honor him and walk with him. And it's frustrating to us that we have such trouble doing it. Zechariah's blessing God for his gracious redemption in the Messiah to free him to fulfill his design to find his satisfaction in God. Well, that's the prophetic word. What about the personal role? Verses 76 and 77. And so all this thought of being saved to serve there at the final end gets Zechariah moving to think about his son. And so the Old Testament promised all these incredible things. We've seen that. Zechariah sees their fulfillment as so secure that he writes about them in past tense. Do you see that? He has visited and redeemed his people. Like it's already done. The whole work's done. It's so sure. So it'd be easy to think in light of all that, if God's going to do all this big stuff, my role, my son's role really is insignificant. But you see, God never dismisses your part and your importance in his great and gracious plan. The individual is never lost in the universal. And if there were ever a moment in the history of the world where he might lose sight of the individual, it's, it's probably right here because it's a very important person at the center of the whole thing and God's doing something new and yet he doesn't. And what that tells you is that your individual life is inextricably joined to God's universal cosmic plan of redemption. And it's played out here in Zechariah's turning his attention to his own son and the role he plays. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. Like, that's your role, son. And it's an important role. Zechariah looks at him through the lens of Isaiah and Malachi who spoke of him. Son, you're fulfilling that role. You will prepare the way for the Lord. You cannot help turn the hearts of fathers to the children and children to the fathers. It's not a role that says, clean up your act so that God will come and save you. That's not the gospel. It's a role that says, God is coming to save. And that salvation is the forgiveness of sins. 
And whatever else we need, that's the heart of it. The one who's gonna make forgiveness of sins possible is on the way, get ready for him. His role is preparatory because he can't accomplish it. The one he prepares for is the one that accomplishes it, but he's preaching the same gospel as Jesus preached. In fact, he's the last Old Testament prophet that would spotlight Jesus. And he essentially says in another place, look, don't look at me, look at Christ. But as we look at John and his unique calling in Jesus's kingdom, really, we realize our role is no different. Like John may be a singular guy within that calling, but your calling is the same. You prepare people for the Lord. You tell them, don't look at me, look at Christ. You tell them salvation, what you most need is the forgiveness of sins that he came to accomplish. Well, finally, the promised fulfillment, verse 78 and 79. So he turns from the prophetic word to the personal role. Now he turns to the heart of the whole song, the height of his joy. He reaches a crescendo here. The Old Testament prophets prepared. John is going to prepare. But now we're talking about Messiah himself, the person at the center. And Zechariah says these beautiful words, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And that's why he came. That's why he's born in the manger. So Zechariah highlights a motive throughout this section. Three times he's talked about mercy and here it's tender mercy. Like why does God do it all? What he's saying is he does it for mercy. His heart for you is mercy. And here it's tender mercy, which is really, it includes my favorite Greek word in the noun form, it's splanknon, which is another one you can tuck away. It's the word for intestines and entrails. Literally, he's saying, why does God do it all? He does it because of the inner organs of mercy, the, the guts of mercy. Like, it describes God's love and compassion for you in your need, in such a strong yearning, like churning up your insides way that he hurts when you hurt. Why does he subject his son to this? Because he looked at you in the midst of your need, and if we dare to say this, that he hurt with your hurt, to the extent that he would subject his beloved to it for you. Again, he didn't do it when you were improving, when you were cleaning yourself up and doing life better. Zechariah sings he did it when you were immersed in darkness and the shadow of death. You're at the pit, the, the lowest point of the fall. You weren't doing life well. You were under the guilt of your sin and enslaved by your sin. And God's love pointed towards our need is what mercy is. It's mercy in action towards our despair. And God says, I, 
My insides are turning inside out looking at how you're suffering under the guilt and enslavement and power of sin to the extent that I will send my, the object of my greatest affection into your broken reality to deal with it for you. That's God's motivation. And then propelled by that mercy, Zechariah goes on in this joyous song to speak of that visit of visits. He visited at the Exodus, but that, as great as it was, pales in comparison when he says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. The picture is of like some caravan that got lost in a barren landscape and was overtaken by pitch darkness and subject to marauders and beasts and trapped. Or the picture of a terrible storm that wrecked havoc and then the sunrise comes. God visited his people in a host of ways to show them mercy, but this is the ultimate visit. It all pointed towards the person who had to come, not just messengers, But beyond all imagining, God himself personally visits. The father sends his son. He visits us with redemption by visiting us in the person of his son. And what all of scripture says is that's the only way he could show his mercy to you. That's the only way he could redeem you from your sin. And so John beautifully describes the sunrise, the rising sun, the dawn of heaven. He's breaking into our darkness and the shadow of death with his light. Malachi spoke of him when he had that beautiful phrase, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. He pictures Messiah as a sun giving life through his righteousness. The, the idea is that the wings of the sun are its rays that give life and warmth and health to the world. And so he's looking at this one who had to come, the son of righteousness will, will radiate life and warmth and health to us in the midst of our gloom and shadow. In this way, he delivers us and guides us into the way of peace, which is a radical difference. It's going from darkness to light. It's being in fellowship and relationship and reconciliation and peace with God. It's walking in God's light. It's a sunrise. And then we asked, how did this take place? Like, how did the sunrise from on high accomplish all this? Well, already we've seen that a greater exodus had to happen, that a horn of salvation had to come, that one who would say, It's not just a possibility that I be cut up like the animals, but my people did forfeit the promised land. I offer myself to be cursed like the animals. And so Luke will say all of this points to the cross, that the child born in the manger had a trajectory that went straight to the cross. And in Luke 23, he says, darkness came over the whole land and the sun's light failed. And in light of Zechariah's hymn, that is staggering. That darkness came over the land and the sun's light failed. That the sunrise from on high, his light for a time was extinguished. Because at the cross, he took into himself all of that darkness and shadow of death. And it overwhelmed him. And that's what my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is. 
cast out into utter darkness, the sunrise darkened, and he went down into the depths of your curse, of your sin. For mercy's sake, he had to go down. But then having paid it in full, Luke goes on to say, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, he arose. And the sunrise overshadowed the darkness. And having paid for our sin in his person, he overcomes it. And the bonds of hell, death, and sin have to let him go free. And the dawn arises and a new day dawns for you. A whole new creation dawns for you because the sunrise came for it and accomplished it, though it took everything to do so. And that's how he dealt with your core problem. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. It all pointed to him and he came and it's the visit of visits. He starts it there. May God add his blessing to you and fill your heart with joy as he did Zechariah's. Amen. Let's stand.